0: Coming up on Nurse Talk, talking about the women of the film Still Alice fighting to wipe out Alzheimer's disease.
1: Are hospitals responsible for back injuries sustained by nurses on the job? You might think so, but not so fast.
0: Finding out which government agency spends 84 million a year on Viagra.
1: What is a medically induced coma? All this and more on Nurse Talk.
0: Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with my co-host Shane Mason, and we are two of the thousands of nurses on duty today.
1: And hello to all of you out there listening to Nurse Talk on Progressive Voices TuneIn, Indiana Talks, and all of our broadcast partners.
0: Shane, I can't go another minute without talking about this story. Daycare note accuses baby, I did say baby, of being aggressive. There is a reason people joke about babies being evil. Those little bundles of joy are capable of quite foul things, like poking you in the retina with their tiny talons or unleashing a geyser of pee right into your unsuspecting face. But we laugh about these misdeeds because we know babies aren't actively trying to hurt us. They're not nefarious creatures. They're just babies.
1: I don't know if I agree with that, but I'll read the note. (laughs) Samantha has been playing roughly and aggressively with the other babies... They'll be crying and upset, but she's smiling and enjoying herself. Go, Samantha. Even our using firm voices to tell her it's not okay to hurt her friends and remove her from the area, she's smiling and going right back. Can you help us out by maybe discouraging her to not play roughly with her friends and her dog? And I've got a picture of the note here.
0: Well, thank God we have a baby expert on speed dial. Who are you going to call? RN Marsha Pod, who is our resident baby whisper. Marsha, how ridiculous is this and what is your take on it?
2: Well, as always, babies are curious and babies are interesting. And uh, this is just another example of, you know, how they experiment with us adults and other (laughs) young souls around them. So it's not unusual. And, uh, you know, I always talk about babies' temperaments, and this baby obviously has a very curious and very strong, undetermined temperament. I call those babies... Football types. You call them what? Football types. Football
0: types. You know,
2: babies who have determination and who aren't really bothered by being pushed at or poked at, and there's there's those types out there, they don't think anything of doing it to others. Um, But they usually figure out that there are sensitive souls in the group. And I'm going to assume that this baby is probably someplace between nine and twelve months old.
0: Well, that's what and, I wanted to ask: is how long do you call a baby a baby? At what age are they a, go to? Well, the they next. become
2: a toddler when they turn
0: one. One year old. That's what I thought. Oh, okay, so, that makes
2: sense. One to three, you're a toddler, and
0: under one, you're a baby. I and see. So, and yeah. babies really can be aggressive because uh, I thought seems they were all
1: aggressive. I thought they all did this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they all poke it their baby friends. <laughs> well, just just
2: like adults, you know, there are aggressive adults and then there are meek, mild adults. We all come in the world with different temperaments. And so this isn't unusual. This is not unusual at all.
0: Wow. And you know, sometimes be-
2: babies are just experimenting and they get a reaction and they think, Wow, that's interesting. But it's not on purpose. That's what you have to realize. Yeah. Until they get to be, you know, over about eighteen months they don't really have a sense of causing any discomfort or harm to others. They just find reactions interesting and curious. And so it's our job as adults to direct and distract and divert. We can't expect them to learn how to be, you know, friendly at the age of nine months. We can, you know, positively reinforce when they do good things and are plain friendly. But, in our world a lot of us were parented just to hear the no's. So when babies hear no, don't touch that, no, don't do that, you know, it becomes something they don't listen to any anymore because it's just a common statement. It's it's a lot better if parents would just focus on reinforcing the positive things they see. So if they give a baby a hug or if they share their toys with another baby, you want to get excited and give them a lot of encouragement and reinforcement for that kind of behavior. And try and just distract and ignore the negative, because that's how they feed into it. If, if you get alarmed and go, oh, or if you get excited and say, oh, you know, don't do that, they're going to get some reaction from you. Mm-hmm. And some kids like the reactivity. Interesting. So that's what you have to remember when you're looking at behavior in babies.
0: Interesting and do you know does this um, suggest that later in life this person would be aggressive? No, not at all
2: okay it does suggest that this baby has a certain kind of temperament though mm. and you know just like we see the babies that you just frown at them or look at them in a scolding way they start crying those are the real sensitive babies yeah so it's just a difference between a baby who's kind of out there and willing to to push and shove a little bit more to get reactions versus a baby who's really sensitive to all the cues. We come into the world with certain temperaments and personalities. So the super sensitive is on one end of the spectrum and the, I call it the football type because they don't mind being pushed and shoved at. They're you know determined and strong-willed individuals. Right. That doesn't mean they're going to grow up and be aggressive. It just means that they have a lot of tolerance for things like that. So, you know, they don't think anything of a baby coming and poking and pushing
0: them over. They don't cry. They just find it interesting.
1: They should train this nice. baby to be a cage fighter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cage so, fighting amongst babies. Marcia, I just got to say, as usual, Marcia, you give a great perspective uh, to it. I-, I like the way you phrase uh, the conversation around this quote unquote aggressive baby.
1: <laughs> All right, so, Marcia, as always, thank you for your great insight. You can visit You're very Marcia. welcome. You can visit Marcia at go to sleepbaby.com.
0: Thanks, Marcia. Have a great day. Thanks. From the ridiculous to the heartbreaking, for those of you who watched the Academy Awards, you know actress Juliana Moore won the Oscar for Best Actress for her role in the movie Still Alice. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, although it was very sad. Her portrayal of Dr. Alice Howland, a renowned linguist professor, is bringing much-needed attention to Alzheimer's disease.
1: The movie is based on Dr. Howland's life and diagnosis of younger-onset Alzheimer's disease. Let's listen to a clip from the movie. The most beautiful and the most intelligent woman I've known in my entire life.
3: Welcome, Dr. Alice Howland.
4: I hope to convince you that by observing these baby steps into the... Into... uh...
1: Alice, where the hell were you? Went for a run. Well, I hope you enjoyed that because you completely blew our dinner plans.
2: I need to talk to you. i got something wrong with me.
3: What? Oh, boy. He's gonna break up or...
2: No. No. I have Alzheimer's disease, early onset. Oh my
0: god. Dr. Heather Snyder, director of medical and scientific operations for the Alzheimer's Association, will be with us later in the show to talk about the facts of Alzheimer's, as well as the latest areas of research and treatment.
1: And from the hospital to nurses, your injuries are not our problem. A recent story done by NPR tells a story about on-the-job injuries to nurses and the alarming trend by hospitals to deny responsibility for those injuries. Later in the show, on behalf of California Nurses Association and NNU, is RN and Lead Nursing Practice Representative Gerard Brogan.
0: All this later in the show. But right now, it's time for news and view. Shane, take it away.
1: All right, so edible radio tags could stifle sales of bogus medications. With sales of bogus prescription drugs amounting to tens of billions of dollars worldwide, there's a solution to that threat that could be smaller than the period at the end of this sentence. Which sentence? This sentence. (laughs) The problem, though, is that you'd have to swallow it. So researchers at Carnegie Mellon Mellon (laughs) University are working on a radio frequency tagging system that would be embedded into pills and encrypted with codes. These are basically like radio ID tags. They come in various sizes and forms, and they can be implanted in pets in case they get lost. The thing here, though, is that you could swallow them. And uh, if you swallow it and you hear Rush Limbaugh talking, then I think you need to go get a checkup. What do you think about that?
0: <laughs> I think enough already. Come on. I didn't know that uh, counterfeit drugs were such a big deal. But the last thing I want is to swallow some kind of a little deal that they're going to be able to track me. So forget it. I don't like it. Your view, Shane?
1: Uh, I I don't know. I didn't know this was such a big deal.
0: Yeah but that's I guess if they can
1: keep me from getting counterfeit medications, then I guess that's good. But where are people getting their medications from? That's exactly right. Tijuana? Where are you buying
0: these meds from? No, you actually get better drugs over there than you do here.
1: Different kind of drugs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Next up, DOD spends $84 million a year on Viagra and similar meds. That's a whole lot of fight and frisky. According to the Military <laughs> Times, the Department of Defense spent $84 million on erectile dysfunction drugs in 2014. About half of it was on Viagra, roughly the cost of an F-35 fighter jet. Since 2011... That's a whole lot of Viagra right there. DOD has doled out $294 million on ED prescriptions, a figure that might actually underestimate total ED expenditures and we can't cut the military budget.
1: Your view, Shane? Uh, I think I need to hook him up with my guy. I can probably get half off on this stuff.
0: (laughs) My view is they're dosing the wrong guns, if you ask me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, Idaho lawmaker needs a lesson in female anatomy. A national organization for women executive urged an Idaho state lawmaker on Wednesday to consult with his female relatives Mm -hmm. about anatomy after he appeared to suggest during a legislative hearing that pills swallowed by women traveled to the uterus.
0: He actually said... Traveled to their vagina. I just want to correct you because I did hear this guy.
1: So Republican State Representative Vito Barbieri asked a Boise area physician how colonoscopies were conducted by doctors from remote locations. The doctor said that they swallowed camera-equipped pills. And then the, the legislator said, can the same procedure then can be done in a pregnancy? Can swallowing a camera and help a doctor determine what the situation is? Uh, doesn't everything end up in a woman's uh, I mean, uh, yes. vagina or yes. uterus?
0: Yes, and and the sad thing was she actually had to say to him, sir, sir, when you swallow a pill that goes into your stomach, it comes out your rectum. There is <laughs> nothing that goes to the vagina. From your mouth to the vagina does not work, and this is why I say we need anatomy and physiology in every high school. Uh, and maybe we should start with the Senate and Congressmen.
1: That poor guy is probably just like he just wants to stay home. No, for a he week. was
0: really, he was persistent. Even after her comment, he still persisted. The guy was really unbelievable. You, you should listen to it because it's it's fabulous. So that's it for news and views. Coming up, are hospitals responsible for back injuries sustained by nurses on the job? You might think so, but not so fast. And the movie Still Alice is bringing much-needed awareness to Alzheimer's
1: disease. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine.
3: We will not be an easy target. We will never roll over and let pain plan our day. Or let an ache tell us what we can and cannot do. We will not linger on the sofa, ask somebody else to bring us the mail, or take the parking space closest to the door. But what we will do is take action. We will plan ahead. We will protect our bodies and fight back by moving. Lace up our sneakers and grab our tennis rackets. We will bowl. We will do our morning laps and bike ride through Saturday afternoon. We will walk our dogs around the block. We will pass up the elevator and proudly take the stairs. Because arthritis can't beat us if we beat it first. In the fight against arthritis, you need a weapon. What's yours? To learn more, visit us at fightarthritispain.org. This message brought to you by the Arthritis Foundation and the Ad Council. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
0: My name is Meera Batra and this is How I Live United. Many families have come to America for a better life. I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to see opportunities available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools and network within the community. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunity and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt, I live it.
5: Give,
2: advocate, volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs along with my co-host Shane Mason and we're two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. In a recent NPR series, we got to take a look into the harsh reality of career-ending on-the-job injuries that nurses face all too often. Let's listen to a short clip courtesy of NPR. Over the next few weeks, we're taking a close look at one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Back and other injuries occur in this profession at far higher rates than even the construction industry. It also sees more of these injuries than law enforcement. And an NPR investigation finds many of the executives who run the companies where these workers are getting hurt are doing little to prevent it. NPR's Danny wordling shows us this troubling side of health care.
3: Okay, try to guess. Who are these
2: workers who get disabled so often by back injuries? I'll give you a moment to think about it. Time's up. We're talking about nursing employees who take care of you in the hospital and other settings. We're talking about nursing assistants and orderlies and registered nurses. Government surveys estimate there are more than 35,000 back and other injuries among nursing staff every year that are so bad the employees have to miss work. And they get those injuries mainly
1: by moving and lifting patients. The NPR series follows the case of RN Terry Cawthorn and Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. We get a glimpse of how some hospital officials around the country have shrugged off what is being called an epidemic. Cawthorne was a nurse at Mission for more than 20 years. Her supervisor testified under oath that she was one of my most reliable employees. Then, as with other nurses described this month in the NPR series, Injured Nurses, a back injury derailed Cawthorne's career.
0: But in Cawthorne's case, administrators at Mission Hospital refused to acknowledge her injuries were caused on the job. In fact, court records, internal hospital documents, and interviews with former hospital medical staff suggest that hospital officials often refuse to acknowledge that the everyday work of nursing employees frequently injures them. And Shane, I just got to add here, this reminds me so much of football and the denial of head injuries in that sport.
1: Yeah, and mission's not unique. NPR found similar attitudes toward nurses in hospitals around the country.
0: Here with us to talk about this disturbing trend and what is being done about it in California is RN Gerard Brogan. Gerard is a lead nursing practice representative for California Nurses Association. Welcome, Gerard. Uh,
5: good morning, everybody. How are you? Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for being with us, Gerard. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself.
5: Uh My name's Gerard Brogan. I'm the lead nursing practice representative for uh, both the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. That's our uh, national organization of nurses, 185,000 strong.
0: That's fantastic. How long have you been a nurse?
5: I've been a nurse too long. Um,
0: (laughs) That's a good answer.
5: (laughs) (laughs) No, you can never be a nurse too long. Uh, Over 30 years now. Wow. uh, nurse both in the UK and the USA. So I've got that uh, somewhat unique perspective of uh, delivering nursing care under two different healthcare delivery systems.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That
0: so. is interesting. So now that you brought that up, I have to ask, um, sure. did you prefer the English way of medicine versus ours?
5: Well, I, I much prefer the system in England, of course, because it's uh, free at point of care which is brilliant. Uh, which takes away a lot of anxiety, takes away a lot of complicated issues in the delivery of healthcare. Uh, people don't have the anxiety of, how am I going to pay for this? Um, and of course, uh, that's part of the nursing ethos that uh, healthcare should be a human right, not a commodity.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So going back to the uh, injury issue, tell us how sure. uh, nurses rate with other occupations in terms of on-the-job injuries.
5: Well, sadly, and maybe surprisingly to some uh, listeners, um, nurses, and I really want to include nursing aides here, too. We don't want to neglect our nursing aid colleagues. Uh, their injury rate in terms of uh, musculoskeletal uh, disorders is three times the amount that la- manual laborers uh, suffer from.
0: And you know people uh, it's
5: quite a statistic. What um, is?
0: It is a huge statistic, Gerard. And what I want to say is I'm surprised that people are surprised by it. Do do most people see the size of most Americans? Yeah, because let's no, be real. I was
5: going to I was going to touch on that, that, growing obesity levels yes. uh, are really affecting uh, the uh, percentage of back injuries incurred by nurses and nurses aides. Um Sad but true is one of the uh, other negative side effects of the obesity problem.
0: Absolutely, it's very difficult to move somebody who's large. By the same token, Gerard, I was mentioning football earlier, and yep. when I when I take care of a football player, especially a pro mm-hmm. player, you're talking about at least four nurses, two on either side, to lift that person up in the bed. So it yes, is. Yes, you are. It's surprising to me that others are surprised by the level of back injury in our profession just because the work we do, moving people around, and it's mm-hmm. even more than moving. That would be moving a person who's lying quietly in the bed. We oftentimes yeah, I, have to I deal don't with... I think
5: it's part of a uh, nurse's public persona that actually this is physical work. Yes. It is manual work. Yes. Uh, I've known a lot of nurses over the years with uh, extremely strong forearms. It's... Uh, <laughs> I noticed that early in my nursing career. Uh, they have Pope That's Popeye very funny. forearms.
0: Yes, yes, the good nurses do have Popeye forearms. Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, so, why are hospitals systematically denying responsibility for these injuries?
5: Well, I, I wish I knew the exact answer to that. Uh, but, um in you know, my sense is. They're denying everything. Uh, we've got a healthcare industry, not a healthcare system. That's right. And it is for profit, um, and they look to shave pennies, cents, wherever they can. Uh,
0: and let's be um, real, Gerard, that back welcome. injuries are really an expensive uh, problem. And so yes, I can the, understand oh. why hospitals deny this, because this is expensive. And if you can put it back on the nurse, which pre unions in this country, that was done every single day to nurses. When you injured yourself on the job back in the day prior to CNA, it was your mm-hmm. problem. It was not their problem.
5: No, no, I, I know. And uh, that reflected industry at large. Uh, it's taken unionization, a lot of uh, dedicated activists over the last 150, 200 years, to uh, persuade employers to take any kind of responsibility for injuries injuries incurred by their employees uh, and they are responsible for it. They have a duty to care for the RN uh, the RN has a duty to care for the patient. And I think we fulfill that obligation. Our employers have that same obligation to care for us. And yet they want to abrogate that responsibility. And it's sad but true. Uh, I think it's pretty simple. It's uh, follow the money. Uh, it costs money to care for people and it costs money to look after people um And they're trying to abrogate all responsibility for that. And I think that reflects their philosophy about everything. Um, Right now, we're seeing a move towards uh, patients being nursed in their own home. Why? Because it's cheap. And uh, there's a lack of regulation. The industry does not like regulation because regulation, what comes without responsibility?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of which, where is OSHA in all of this? Are they involved? Oh, yeah,
5: OSHA have been fabulous. Um, Cal OSHA, uh, I must say, my experience with them on this issue and several other issues over the last several years, uh, they tend to be ahead nationally of uh, other OSHAs. uh, As you all probably know, there's a federal OSHA and then there's state OSHAs. Uh, I do know of one or two other Occupation Safety and Health Administrations that are pretty progressive, but uh, we've been very pleased with Cal OSHA taking its responsibility seriously on what's their primary role, protecting people in the workplace. Um, we got a bill passed uh, last year, Jerry Brown, thank you for that, uh, that was enabling legislation that uh, gave uh, OSHA the edict of coming up with a comprehensive lifting regulation, uh, Al She took that uh, responsibility seriously. They held a series of hearings. Uh, we organized very well around those hearings, had nurse after nurse talk about their personal experience with these injuries. Uh, which is so. Depend.
0: Which is fantastic. And Jerry Brown has been very good to the nurses in this state. That bill is the AB 1135 that you're talking That's about. Right. yeah. And it's very helpful, and I want to just say a shout out to OSHA as you have, because this is one of the agencies that uh, the Republicans in this country are fighting to do away with. Anything oh, absolutely! That's protecting Again, abrogating
5: all responsibility. Correct. Uh, which is not—it's just not right on a basic human level. But this is very thorough, very meticulous regulation, and we're extremely pleased with it.
1: So why are we not seeing more done in other states? I think California is kind of in the lead on this. What about in other areas of the country?
5: Yeah, several of the states have um, put in some kind of regulation. I know Illinois, New Jersey, Minnesota, Maryland, Rhode Island, not as strong, not as comprehensive, and not as much teeth as in California. Um, And my opinion on that is who forced, The authorities to uh, who put the pressure on the governor, who put the pressure on OSHA, is our organization, the California Nurses
0: Association. You're you're absolutely right, Gerard. And I would bet you that if you looked at the states and where this legislation is not part of the law of the land, that you find more and more injured nurses and nurses that are injured that aren't receiving the help from their hospitals because their deniability treats us like second-class citizens. And they've gotten away with this for a long uh, time.
5: Yeah, it's very sad, the disdain and distance that uh, administration and the hospital industry has for the people who who actually are the integral employees that were the face of that hospital, that hospital chain, that industry, with the patient, and yet they treat us with distance and disdain. Yes. It's... Again, you know, I I think we could talk about that all day. There's a lot of history involved. We're a 90% female organization. We all know the history of uh, workplace attitudes to women, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of pay and conditions. So I I think that comes into play a lot in terms of their wanting to ignore this problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to, to wrap it up, Gerard, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners?
5: Well, yeah, I, I think um, here's, here's what I've got to say to sum up on all this. is We as an organization, through our members, we are member-driven, and they are all direct care nurses. They're the folks who do the job. They're not uh, nurses who sit in offices and look at all this in an abstract way. These are nurses who go in every day. They're at the coalface. Um and they've organised. They've organised this uh, association to represent their needs and the needs of the patients they take care of. Uh, and this is a, a salutary lesson in organising. Um, we identify problems. We uh, analyse why those problems are existing. We proffer a solution. Then we go out. We go out the street. We go to the legislative uh, arena. We go into the public opinion arena. And we organize, and we're pretty sophisticated and uh, assertive about that. And that's it. It's not a secret. It's not a magic formula. It's identifying those problems, organizing around those problems, bringing that to the attention of the public and opinion makers.
1: Absolutely. So we really appreciate your service over the years, and uh, we hope to have you you back on the show. We've been talking with R.N. Gerard Brogan, Lead Nurse Practice Representative for California Nurses Association. For more information about this topic, visit nnu.org.
0: Next, a movie that's raising awareness for a dreaded disease, the impact of Alzheimer's on individuals, caregivers, and communities. Stay with us.
1: Some
2: statistics are surprising. Some are unbelievable. And some are simply
1: unacceptable. Right now, nearly 30% of U.S. students aren't finishing high school. Nearly 30%, and that's the average. In many places, it's even higher than that. And fixing it is a responsibility that we all share. This is President Obama, and I urge everyone, not just parents, but friends and neighbors and family members, to take responsibility for encouraging the high school students in your communities, to support them, challenge them, push them a little, and do whatever it takes to help them make it through. Because this is one statistic we simply can't afford to ignore. You can do your part by going to boostup.org and sending an email, a text message, or even a wake-up call to a student at risk of dropping out. Go to boostup.org and provide the boost that's needed to make it to graduation. A message from the U.S. Army And the Ad Council. Here at the GED
2: Pep Talk Center, we've got a Pep Talk that can motivate you.
4: Sometimes things don't always turn
3: out the way you want them to. You can improve your future. Now get your game base on and take the first step towards a better life. Hurry up. Don't make me repeat myself. Whatever level of motivation you need, we've got a pep talk for you. Call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED
2: or visit yourged.org for your pep talk and for free classes in your area. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
1: Hey, Casey, what time is it?
0: Time to stay out of trouble.
1: We We are are nurses. nurses. We We cannot cannot prescribe, prescribe, diagnose, or treat, but we we can can give give good advice.
0: advice. Does that include fashion advice?
1: Nah, stick to what you're good at.
0: You should talk.
2: Alzheimer's is a disease, which is something that people don't always
1: think about. It's actually in your brain for probably as long as 20 years before you start to see the symptoms, the memory loss, the executive function. This is not a normal part of aging. This is
4: not something that just happens to people who are 90-something years of age. Women in their early 60s who are very vibrant, who are working, are twice as likely to get Alzheimer's as breast cancer. Women have been at the epicenter. They have the diagnosis of dementia more than men, and more than two-thirds of the caregivers for people with dementia and Alzheimer's are women.
0: Alzheimer's disease is the number six killer in the United States, but in the top ten, the only killer with no disease-modifying drugs or cure. And we have 60 million baby boomers entering their Alzheimer's years. What we know for sure is unless we change the course, it is going to
4: absolutely devastate the U.S. economy. So this is a national emergency.
0: This is a national epidemic. Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs.
1: And I'm Shane Mason, and we're two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. Julianne Moore, Maria Shriver, Kristen Stewart, Sandy Oltz, Lisa Genova, Dr. Maria Carrillo, Elizabeth Gelfin-Stearns. These are some of the amazing women behind Still Alice, a movie that gives us a rare window into the experience of living with Alzheimer's disease, a glimpse of the inside looking out.
0: While most of us have heard of Alzheimer's disease, and many of us have been personally or professionally affected by it, the film Still Alice has done much to heighten interest and awareness of the disease.
1: Here with us today is Dr. Heather Snyder. Dr. Snyder is the Director of Medical and Scientific Operations for the Alzheimer's Association. Dr. Snyder, a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being with us.
4: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Sure. So first, tell us about the Alzheimer's Association and how you got involved, please.
4: Absolutely. The Alzheimer's Association is the largest voluntary health organization dedicated to Alzheimer's disease. So we have uh, uh, chapters all across the country that provide services and support to the more than 5 million individuals and their families that are living with this disease. But in addition to that, we also have a key part of our mission is uh, to advance Alzheimer's research. And that's part of the team that I'm on is uh, one of the scientists uh, on staff at the Alzheimer's Association.
0: Very fascinating. And as somebody, my mother um, had Alzheimer's who, and she was a retired nurse. And very scary, the statistics about women and Alzheimer's. I really wasn't aware of that. So can you talk about the impact of the film on Alzheimer's awareness? I have to say it was a remarkable film.
4: Absolutely, and, and you're right. I think one of the things that we're becoming more aware of is that women are the epicenter of this disease. The, about two-thirds of, of people that are living with this disease are women, but also from the care side, uh, the majority of, of people providing care are women. And this movie, Still Alice, really is raising awareness in a way that we haven't really seen uh, before for Alzheimer's disease, and it's it's increasing the conversations that families are having, uh, that people are having all across the board. And in fact, just myself, after the Oscars the other night, for instance, in looking at my social media feed, I was amazed by people that are um, not affiliated with my professional life, the number of comments around Alzheimer's awareness and people coming out and talking about their loved one or their grandmother or their parent that's affected with this disease in their own personal experience. So it's really, I think, raising awareness in a way we haven't seen before, but also increasing that conversation, and we hope it continues to increase the conversations that are happening not just within families but within communities, and that that translates also to an increase in conversation on, in Capitol Hill, for instance, and, and raising and increasing the funds for uh, both research but also for services for those that are affected.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's a a difficult thing to talk about, so it's good that there's starting to be a dialogue open up about it. Um, Unlike Julianne Moore's character in the film, most cases are not early onset. Do you mind talking a little bit about the differences, please?
4: Absolutely. And and I think you raise a great point. As Um, for so long, we talked about Alzheimer's disease as being something that was really just affecting people in in their old age. And and that's not, in fact, the case. Uh, We we know that there's approximately 200,000 people in the United States that are living with what we call younger onset. So that's when an individual develops uh, the memory changes associated with Alzheimer's disease under the age of 65. And frankly, we don't really understand why these cases of Alzheimer's disease appear at such a young age. And it is it is not the majority. It is, it is a small number of uh, or a small percentage of the overall people that are affected. Um, and we know that in a small, pers- a small proportion of these people that have younger onset, they do have uh, what, we, what we call familial Alzheimer's disease. So they have very rare genetic misspellings that are linked to an increase uh, that are linked to developing Alzheimer's disease. So if they have this genetic misspelling, they will develop the disease, and it's at a much younger age of onset, 30s, 40s, and 50s. But that's a, a small proportion of people that have younger onset, and, and overall, we just don't understand all the reasons why.
0: And can you tell me then, in the, um, older, when you, the older onset, Alzheimer's, it, does that have a familial link as well?
4: So we refer to that as as late onset Alzheimer's disease, and there is a link in terms of that if you have a first degree relative, so a parent or a sibling, that had Alzheimer's, you you are at an increased risk. Uh, but we don't really understand why, and it's more linked to to genes that are are risk genes. So there are uh, probably the most well studied or well talked about risk gene is called apolipoprotein E4, or ApoE4, um, and if you get one copy from your mother and one copy from your father, so you have two copies. You have an increased risk, and even one copy is an increased risk. But there are people that are living with two copies of the, of the ApoE4, or even one copy of ApoE4, that do not develop Alzheimer's, and, and we don't really understand why. So there is a link, but it's it's um, there's a, a lot of other things that are at play, and it's it's probably more of a, um, a much more complex than than just that um, that okay. direct link to a, a heredity.
0: Are there any other factors that uh, we have found that lend more towards an Alzheimer's diagnosis? Anything in lifestyle that makes you more prone?
4: Yeah, that's a really uh, a growing area of research that we're continuing to understand. And, and so we do know that for the majority of people with Alzheimer's disease, age seems to be the greatest risk factor as, as um, individuals over the age of 65 approximately. One in nine will develop the disease, and after the age of 85, approximately one in three. So we, we do know that there's a link to age. Uh, Other things that we've seen links to are are, um, uh, cardiovascular health, for instance, that people with uh, heart disease or diabetes seem to be at an increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease at a later life. Uh, We also also see that, you know, and, and other cardiovascular factors, so overall lifestyle health related to cardiovascular disease also seems to be linked. Um, there's some research looking at head injury, for instance. So uh, there was one study that was presented at the Alzheimer's Association's International Conference a, a couple years ago. It was a very large study in, in over 250,000 people, and it showed that if they had an incidence of head injury, that they were two and a half times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease or related dementia in later life. So trying to understand what that linkage is is a, is a continuing uh, growing area of research as well.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. And just some basic facts about Alzheimer's for our listeners. More than 5 million Americans are living with this disease, and every 67 seconds someone in the United States develops the disease. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States.
0: And the other thing I wanted to talk about, Dr. Snyder, um you know, I know there are a couple of drugs that we give and I haven't seen much efficacy. Is there efficacy in the in the couple of drugs that are out there for Alzheimer's? So
4: there are there are four drugs that are still in use uh, in the United States that have been approved for, uh, for use in people with Alzheimer's disease, but they're symptomatic. So they're really um, treating the symptoms of the individual so um, and helping them maintain function uh, for a longer period of time. But there's no evidence that they're stopping or slowing the progression of the disease. And so to your point, absolutely, we need something that gets us to be able to stop or slow the progression of the disease, and we're not there yet. And that's that's really where the That coming back full circle to the beginning of our conversation, uh, in in increasing awareness and hopefully increasing funding for research will get us to that point of having a therapy that will stop or slow the progression of the disease.
1: And speaking of uh, uh, funding for this, uh, let's talk about some of the critical areas of research such as cause and risk factors, detection and diagnosis. Uh, Are there any neuroprotective factors? Is there anything someone can do to protect themselves from this? Uh, And where is the research money really going right now?
4: Great question, and, and there is a lot of work that's going on to understand what may be those types of lifestyle interventions that somebody could do to reduce their risk for later-life Alzheimer's disease, and probably the four areas that um, are, are the most advanced in, in our understanding, or at least in continuing to be investigated, um, back to the cardiovascular factors, so thinking about diet and, and an overall heart-healthy diet. Uh, staying mentally engaged, so continuing to use your mind, use uh, stay engaged, in, and continuing to in things that are lifelong learning. Staying socially active, so continuing to engage in your community, whatever that might mean to you. And probably the strongest evidence we have is physical activity. So continuing to be active um, in your life, and whatever that might mean to you. And. Well, the one thing about physical activity, it seems that it, it doesn't matter when you start. If you've been physically active your whole life, if you start in midlife, or even once you have memory changes, there seem there have been uh, several studies that have been published showing that it still seems to be beneficial. We don't have the recipe though of um, right. if you do these things, you're going to reduce your risk by X percent, but. We are moving in that direction, and it's, it's critical to, to keep moving in that way.
1: Well, as always, when we ask this question, I was hoping you were going to say booze and chocolate, but I guess not. <laughs> which, is,
0: which is so sad. So um, let's talk a little bit about the impact the disease has on individuals, caregivers, and our society at a whole. As you said, uh, so many millions of uh, baby boomers are hitting that critical 65 with the growing numbers uh, showing up for Alzheimer's. So what does that mean for all of us?
4: So today, with the 5 million, there are an estimated over 5 million individuals in the United States living with Alzheimer's disease, and that translates to over 15 million people that are providing care uh, for somebody with Alzheimer's disease. And as we continue, if, if we don't get that therapy, whether it's a lifestyle or a medication to or, stop or slow the progression, by mid-century, that's going to more than triple. So you're talking uh, nearly 15 million people living with Alzheimer's disease and nearly 45 million Americans that are providing care. So we're going to continue to see this grow. And, and the, the, um, for caregivers, there is, uh, there, it is a huge responsibility. There's a huge amount of um, uh, energy and stress that, that can be uh, put on the caregiver during that process uh, of providing care for their loved one. I see, I've seen this in my own family and in watching my mother-in-law provide care for her mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's disease and just the, the change in the dynamic and, and the amount of stress and pressure that it has provided on her. But I also see that, and we, we know this from research as well, that families that access community resources, uh, organizations like the Alzheimer's Association that have support groups, online uh, support groups and, and, and conversations that um, help caregivers not feel alone in, in this uh, journey,
0: yes. there's better
4: outcomes overall, both for the individual that's living with Alzheimer's disease, but also for the, the caregiver and for the family unit as a whole.
0: Is there any... Why more women than men? I'm curious. I know women tend to live longer. Is that the only link?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really not something that we fully understand. I think that that is... uh, uh, one of those questions that we're trying to, we're trying to understand, it, it's been thought for a long time that it was because women live longer, but if you also look at, for instance, at the cardiovascular factors, women also tend to have a um, higher incidence of, of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So trying to understand what those linkages are are so important for understanding what may be the underlying biology of why uh, uh, women are, are, have more um, prevalence of Alzheimer's disease is and- higher in women.
0: And I recently heard that, um, you know, they were finding on autopsy people with Alzheimer's plaque uh, in their brains. But then I recently read that that plaque was not associated with the disease in that the areas of plaque in the brain did not correlate with dysfunction in the body. Is that true?
4: Yeah, so that... So um, what... What we know is that there are about, um, and actually what we can do now with technology is you can actually take a picture of the brain and see the amyloid, the beta amyloid plaques uh, in, the, in the brains of, of living human beings. And we know that about 30% of people, uh, when you take this picture, may have the plaques in their brains but not yet have the memory changes associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, one of the ideas in the field is that, that it could be that, um, that they're more, at an increased risk for developing the memory changes and that they're on, the, that they're on a continuum. And in fact, uh, four years ago, the Alzheimer's Association worked with the National Institute on Aging to develop revised guidelines uh, for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, and it set out the idea that research uh, supports that Alzheimer's disease is a continuum, very much like how we talk about heart disease, and that there's biological changes that are happening at a much earlier time point, 10 or 15 and maybe 20 years before someone has the memory changes associated with the disease, and we could identify those individuals, and when we have a therapy, intervene at that time point to see if we're able to stop or slow the the disease. So it's that same type of idea. If you take a picture and you see uh, the amyloid plaques, does that mean that they're somewhere on that continuum? And if we have a therapy, can we intervene at that time point to stop or slow the progression of the disease? And in fact, there is a clinical trial, a prevention trial, uh, that is doing just that. It's looking to identify individuals that have the amyloid in their brains, and looking to test a certain um, a, a certain drug to see if they intervene at in an earlier time point, are they able to stop or slow the progression of the disease?
1: That's, it's an
4: exciting time in yeah, the field, right yeah, now. Yeah, we're, we're like an exciting talk time. About
1: yeah. Well, we really appreciate everyone. To do, is there anything else that you'd like to say to wrap up before we let you go?
4: I think the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, this is something. This is a disease that is affecting so many people all across the country, and we do know that accessing resources is. is so helpful for both the individual and the family. And a wealth of resources can um, can be found on our website at ALZ.org. It's also a place to have your voice heard as, as we continue to change the conversation, uh, be an advocate, and, and continue to raise awareness both in your community but
2: also on Capitol Hill.
0: Thanks so much for your time in this important fight, Dr. Snyder. It's uh, very important that we have as many people as possible fighting this disease because it really is growing in numbers and it is scary appreciate your time.
4: Absolutely. Thank you for raising awareness.
1: Absolutely. So again, you can visit ALZ.org. We've been talking with Dr. Heather Snyder, Director of Medical and Scientific Operations for the Alzheimer's Association.
0: We'll be right back with health trivia and email questions. Don't go away. Kids will spend 20 minutes color? listening to songs like this.
1: What's your favorite color? What's your
4: How about two minutes to brush their teeth? Brushing for two minutes now can save your child from severe tooth pain later. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. Two minutes, twice a day. I have the time. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ad Council.
0: Hey,
3: Billy. Want to go to the state fair? Yeah! Well, you can't. Huh? Well, you see, Billy, when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have done with it. But now your parents are becoming energy efficient. They could save hundreds of dollars a year and take you to the fair next year.
0: I want to go now.
3: I know you do. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energiesavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council.
1: Today, you
5: ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You read a celebrity blog. You planned a workout. You skipped it. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov slash today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.
1: Casey, I'm going on vacation right after the show. I'm excited. Four days in the wilderness, and I'll tell you, all I can really think about is that all materials relating to health trivia are the sole responsibility (laughs) of Nurse Talk LLC and are not affiliated with any network or stream service airing our show.
0: I got to love that because here you're headed up to the uh, woods, and that's what you're thinking of. I'm sure you'll have an enjoyable trip, and I feel for the person in the car with you. (laughs) So our health trivia question this week, Shane, is what do your white blood cells do? And boy, oh boy, if somebody doesn't know this, we're in trouble.
1: I don't know, but I know they can't play basketball.
0: <laughs> <laughs> because they're white? <laughs> if you know the answer to this week's question, or you're the first to look it up and email us, you'll win a $25 gift certificate to Starbucks. And of course, you'll email us at contest at nursetalksite.com, or you can even tweet us at hashtag ntcontest.
1: So- so our question last week was how many muscles does your body use to balance yourself while standing still.
0: Now that's incredible because that made me think of how many muscles we have which I didn't know and I knew we had 106 bones so I figured there were probably four per bone so I figured about <gasps>
1: why? 400 wait, 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 wait. why 4 per bone. I
0: know. I just cuz I figured it would be at least four cuz you have to have at the end of each bone <laughs> oh, a muscle God. to move it or do something to it. Well I was off cuz it's 600 Total, a little bit more than 600 muscles in the body, but it's 300 to actually um, balance yourself, which is which is quite amazing. That's a lot of muscles. And it's so. a lot of muscles, and that's why I said uh, physical therapists are such smart people because they have to know all of these muscles. You know, we didn't have to learn the muscles right. in nursing school,
1: but they have to. So we did have a winner, John Badger, listening on iHeartRadio 1.
0: Shane, here's something that our producer objected to, but she's not here. So let's have people take a listen. Somebody has asked us about medically induced comas and why they're used. And first, a little bit about them. So can you explain a little bit about a medically induced coma?
1: So what you do a medically induced coma, so you have the uh, uh, courage to do karaoke.
0: That's very good, Shane. (laughs) Karaoke. Basically, what happens with a medically induced coma is that you take a drug, that's administered to you until you see a certain pattern in the monitor that follows the patient's brain waves and EEG. The patient with brainwave injuries who are in a coma after a similar pattern, if that pattern is there, then they feel that they're comfortable the patient is in a drug-induced coma. You are doing so so that you can hopefully protect the brain.
1: So is this what's going on with Whitney's daughter? They found her in a coma, but then I think they are... Have- kept her in a now medically induced coma to reduce seizure activity is my understanding.
0: I think that's absolutely correct because, and so what they want to do and why they put you in a coma is to rest the brain. So the idea being if the brain doesn't have to perform all its functions, it has time to heal. Now, in her case, because she was in a coma to begin with, and then as she came out of it and had seizure activities, they had to bring her further down to it to try to stop the seizure activity. In her particular case, I think this is much harder because I think that the brain injury is so extensive that bringing her out of the drug induced, I don't think will actually wake her up.
1: So they Uh, use these for traumatic brain injuries. They they use this if someone has had like an overdose. Uh, I think that there's some metabolic conditions that they use this for as well to basically reduce the overall buildup of waste products to reduce the temperature of the body so that the body can heal.
0: That's right. And they like to reduce the amount of energy that the different brain areas use, which is one of the reasons they put you in this coma so that it can heal and the swelling can go down. On a completely different note, Shane, last night I was watching Vice TV, which is a great show, but he did a special series on cancer and this wonderful new cancer treatment that's being done in three different places in the country. One of them is MD Anderson. And what they're using is viruses to actually fight the virus of cancer. And they're using three different virus they're using in their trials, HIV, measles, and the common cold virus. Okay. So these three viruses, what they do, and each one is treating a different type of cancer, and there are 300 cancers, by the way, which is fascinating in and of itself. They take an HIV virus and they gut it. They take out the guts of it and they instill in this cancer-fighting treatment inside the virus. Okay. The virus is then injected into the person and it goes directly to to the cancer cells and only to the cancer cells, wherever they be in the body. And it was quite dramatic because the first person that they tried this with, she had uh, glioblastoma, which, as we know, is a very severe uh, brain cancer. Right. And she actually had a tumor that was protruding through from her forehead. Eesh. So she received this treatment. Now, I will say that the treatment can make you very sick in the beginning, but the good news about that is it lasts only four days, Uh, The patient develops a very high temperature. And in one case, they they did put the little girl who received it into a drug induced coma to save her brain from any more trauma with this. And the virus actually goes into the cancer cells and literally blows them up, at which point then the other parts of the immune system come and eat up the debris. And the person is cancer-free. So with the first person that they did this with, The tumor that was protruding from her head actually, day four, began to recede. And by four weeks, it was completely gone. It had eaten the bone of her forehead away. Mm -hmm. That began to heal, as did the skin. And six months into this, after the treatment, she was completely free of cancer. And it has not returned. So then they used the HIV virus with the little girl. Now, she had been on four years of chemotherapy she had leukemia and she had had four years of chemotherapy and had done them all and the doctors had told her it's time for you to take your little girl home at which point the parents called somebody else who said there's this fantastic treatment they called they were able to get her in They did the treatment. The parents were worried because it's the HIV virus. So first off, their thing is, our little girl is so sick, she's immunocompromised, and you're going to inject her with HIV. And what the doctor assured her is, I can guarantee you that your daughter will not get HIV because we've gutted this virus.
1: But I cannot
0: guarantee you that she will be cured of cancer. Right. Uh, because we don't know the efficacy. And in fact, she was cured. They showed the girl two years later, completely healthy, no cancer whatsoever. It's really a remarkable breakthrough. Something like this has not happened in cancer treatment in a very, very long time. It was an incredible, incredible uh, story. So they are looking to bring this, to manufacture this and bring it to market by 2016. Now, as I said, there's just three cancers that they've been treating, but this has the promise of being able to treat all the different kinds of cancer.
1: It's really groundbreaking work. It sounds incredible. I'm wondering, are there any risks to working with the virus? I mean, I guess if they're getting rid of the... DNA that the virus uses to replicate, then there's probably not much of a risk. And
0: that's what they're saying. There's no risk of the virus of the person getting measles or the person getting the cold or the person getting HIV because they do gut the virus. Treating a virus with a virus is brilliant. And especially because it doesn't target any other cell in the body Only the virus cells that produce cancer.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds really promising and exciting. I'm surprised they're going to get it to market so quickly. I wonder how they're doing that. But uh,
0: they've been doing this a while, which is just
1: remarkable. Yeah, thanks for bringing that story. So, I guess now it's time Time for some email some email
0: questions. Do you want to start?
1: Sure. So, dear nurses or anyone else who might pick this up off the floor, I love your show, and I'm wondering what you can tell me about stem cell therapy to repair knees. This from Judy Jay in Dixon, Illinois.
0: Well, I can tell you this because I um, know somebody who had this done quite successfully. The interesting part about this is it has not been approved by the FDA here in this country. However, it is widely used in Europe and um, other places, uh, those places, of course, having single-payer health care systems. I think here in this country, one of the reasons the FDA hasn't approved this is because it's going to put knee replacement surgeons almost out of business.
1: Well, aren't stem cells an abomination of God?
0: No, because here's what's oh. happening with this: is they harvest stem cells from your own bone marrow, they take those and they uh, juice them up with some vitamins and some minerals, <laughs> and then they inject them into your knee, and they actually, and they actually. Um, regrow cartilage which is quite incredible so uh, much research about this most of it done in europe since we're not using it here you can get this therapy here go online and research stem cells um, with relation to knee replacement or joint replacement there is a place here in mill valley that's doing it Uh, the procedure cost about five thousand to do that's what i've heard tell And the success rate is incredible. Insurance will not cover this because the FDA has not approved this. I would love to start a groundswell of people out there to advocate for this to be made available to more people and for the FDA to pay for it. Because it's a whole lot better than having surgery. Not the FDA pay for it, but approve it. Thank you. All right. Next question, please. Dear Casey and Shane, I know you're not dentists, but you can probably answer this question. Why do we have wisdom teeth, and do they always have to be pulled? Your niece, Taylor. Well, I love this. (laughs) Do you know, Shane?
1: uh, I think you guys could have had this talk over dinner, but maybe it's better this way. (laughs) Uh, wisdom teeth are the upper and lower third molars. They're located at the very back of the mouth, and they're called wisdom teeth because they usually come in at between the ages of 17 and 21 when a person is old enough to have gained some wisdom.
0: And that's really ridiculous because this whole uh, deal of wisdom teeth came about when people were dying at 30.
1: So so, at 21,
0: yeah, you better have some wisdom because you're going to be dead in another nine years. (laughs) Now, today, if we fast forward today, I don't think there's much wisdom in a 17 to 21 year olds. Uh, For instance, men's brain don't fully mature until after the age of 24. So not much wisdom. Anyway. So
1: do you got to get them pulled or do you not got to get them pulled?
0: You do not have to get them pulled unless they cause a problem, I do believe, Shane. I had mine pulled uh, way back in my uh, 30s. But because uh, it was crowding the rest of my mouth out. What about you? you, Do you still have your wisdom teeth? Well, that's
1: interesting because usually it's your mouth that's crowding everything else out.
0: (laughs) That's true. So your jaw isn't really large enough to give them room. Your wisdom teeth may get stuck in your jaw or not be able to break through your gums. They are so far back in your mouth and crowded, you may have trouble cleaning them. And a cyst could form that would damage the bone and roots. So these are all reasons that you would have your wisdom teeth out and it's always a good idea since shane and i are nurses and not really in the dental field to go see a dentist and get this handled for yourself we'd like to thank the national nurses united and california nurses association for their support of our show a great big thank you to our executive producer patty lockard and june miller and daria karpova our sound engineers today taylor lockard of social networking and progressive voices tune in and all of our wonderful broadcast partners thanks for listening To laugh, you got to listen. We'll see you next week.
5: Thanks for listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine. Brought to you by National Nurses United. Check us out on Facebook or go to our website at nursetalksite.com. For more information about National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, visit nationalnursesunited.org. Until next week, remember, laughter is the best medicine.